who are your people? What group do you find the greatest connection with? Where do you feel most at home? For David, the place where he felt most at home was in the presence of God. It's with the people of God. This is the place where he wants to be more than anywhere else. This is an amazing psalm, and it's in this section of psalms, Psalm 23 to 30, where God's house is in view for every single one. And specifically, there's a subset within that of Psalms 26 to 28. We see in Psalm 26 the the approach to the house of God. So he's going up to the house of God. In Psalm 27, we see him finding refuge from his enemies in God's house. And then in Psalm 28, he prays in the house of God and receives an answer to his prayer. So Psalm 26 is this approach to the house of God, it seems related in a real way to Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, which both are about that. How do we approach God? How can we come before God? Some think this is sort of what's called an entrance liturgy. So as pilgrims would come to the temple of God, they would go through this certain liturgy, these things that they would say. Um, They would speak something and they would have a response from the priest or from the Levite. Um, We're not sure about that. But it's interesting because there's this use of this phrase, great assembly, at the very end of the passage, which is only used again in Psalm 68, verse 26. And it refers to this festival procession. So it seems to be they're coming to the house of God, looking for refuge, looking for sanctuary in God's house. So the outline here is is pretty straightforward. We're going to see the testing of God, the presence of God, and the security of God. So first, verses 1 to 3 the testing of God. Verse 1, he starts off by saying, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Verses like this in the Psalms are, are sometimes difficult, and they can frustrate our understanding of the Psalms because it sounds like he's saying that he's been perfect, he's never wavered, never stumbled, Well, how can we pray these prayers if that's the kind of thing it's saying? Because how is that true of any of us? Well, again, I don't think what he means here is that he's perfect. We've seen this a few times, but integrity here doesn't mean faultless. It means wholehearted. It means sincere. It means that he has a desire with his whole heart to walk in the ways of God. He's he's aware of his sin and his dependence on God, right? With that word integrity think we use the word sometimes integrity in our language to refer to the grains on wood. Um, Wood has integrity when the grains all go in the same direction. They're all consistent and therefore it's stronger. And for us, we see with David, he's, he has his whole heart devoted to God and he's saying, I'm sincerely dependent on you. So he knows he's sinful, but he's looking to God in dependence. He spoke in a similar way at the end of Psalm 25 in verse 21. He said, may integrity and uprightness preserve me. So he's asking that God would make him wholehearted in his devotion to God. You know, God actually would affirm the same reality about David using the same words in 1 Kings 9.4 when he's speaking to Solomon. He says, as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness. So the same, same phrasing here is used about David. God's saying that's the kind of person that David was. He was wholehearted toward me. And really what David is asking in this opening verse is he's asking God to judge him. 
when he says vindicate me, what he's actually saying is judge me, God, judge me. Because even though he's not perfect, he believes that he's innocent of the specific things he's being accused of in the context of this psalm. So he's saying, judge me, God, vindicate me. I know you're going to vindicate me because I'm guiltless in regards to this accusation. In fact, the structure of this first verse is interesting because it's, it's the structure of the entire psalm. We see first a request, vindicate me. Then a reason is given because he walks in integrity. And then his refuge is stated that he's trusted in God without wavering. This is a great way to pray, right? We come to God with our request. We point him to the reason. Maybe it's our own guilt, our own uh, sinlessness in this certain area. Maybe we want to be vindicated, or maybe it's on the basis of God's own character. And then we turn to our refuge and say that we're depending on God and God alone. At the end of this verse, when he says, I've trusted in the Lord without wavering, that without wavering could actually be a complete sentence in and of itself. And the idea is he's saying, I'm not going to waver. There's no wobbling or waffling in his stance with God. He's standing firm saying, I trust in God fully. Look at verse two. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. He doesn't just want God to judge him and declare him innocent. He also wants God to refine him. These verbs, as we've seen before in the Psalms, these are verbs that refine, or that, that are associated with the refining of metal. Not only about testing the metal, but about improving the quality of the metal. That's what these, these verbs speak to, proving, trying, and testing. In fact, we see two of the same verbs in Psalm 17, 3, where David says, you have tried my heart, you have visited me by night, you have tested me, and you will find nothing. Again, there, there's this idea of refining the metal. And, um, and, and what God is testing here is this inner person. He says, test my heart and my mind. In fact, that's literally, those words heart and mind are literally kidneys and heart. So it's kind of interesting in that way, kidneys. But they saw the, the inner, the innards, I guess you could say, right? The guts of the person as being that inner self. That's kind of the idea. So just as we speak to heart as really being the center of emotions, even though it's where the blood is pumped, they saw the heart as being where the mind was and the feeling and emotions and the inner self as being located in the kidneys and the heart. So he's asking for God's refining power in his life to purge him of his sin and to make him more like God. This is something we should be asking for in our prayers continually. And the imagery here is intimidating because it implies that this whole process is painful. Right? To be refined as gold is refined is a painful process. It requires heat. It requires fire. It implies pain and struggle. But the result of it is pure gold. So David's asking, even if it's painful, that God would refine him and make him more like God. Look at verse 3. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. So clearly there's some sort of difficult context that he's in. He seems to be suffering from false accusations from evil men. And yet his focus isn't on those evil men. His focus isn't on the injustice against him. He's given that to God, but now his focus is on something better. And again, this is a theme that's so clear in the Psalms. And we should be asking again and again, what is your focus on? What are you setting your sights on? Yes, you may be in a time of great suffering, of, of great injustice in your life, 
you may be bringing that suffering to God. You may be wrestling with this day and night, but you have to choose what you're going to focus on after that. What are you going to keep your sights set on? This will determine everything about how you live. And David here is looking to God. He's focusing on his word. He's remembering God's steadfast love and his faithfulness, or really his his truth. He's keeping his sights on that which grounds him. There's always a reason to take your focus off of God. There's always a reason that we have something in front of us that distracts us, that tells us it's more urgent than God. But we have to remember when our problems are near, that God is nearer. When our enemies are close, God is closer. When all we can see are difficult things in this life, God is present with us. And that truth is more foundational and more important than anything else that's in front of us. And so David is committed to staying focused on God, to looking to him. He makes a commitment to walk in God's truth and in his faithfulness. This means that his pattern of life is seeking to conform itself to who God is. So that's the first section that we see. We see David in verses 1 to 3. We see the testing of God. And then in verses 4 to 8, we see the presence of God. The presence of God. He spoke positively about what he sets before him. Then he speaks negatively about those he avoids, about those that he doesn't want to be in the presence of. And both are important, right? It's important to say positively what you want to do and also say negatively what you're going to avoid. This is the way that all true change happens, by avoiding certain things and by clinging to other things. Look at verse 4. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. As a king, who you align yourself with is so important. It will determine the entire way that you reign as a king. We see this, I remember, in the story of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, who after he takes over for his dad, he has the option of listening to his friends, these young men who are emotion-driven and pride-driven, or to listen to the older men, the advisors of his father Solomon, who have wisdom and stability, and he chooses to follow after his friends. And it determines everything about his kingdom. The kingdom is torn in two. It's ripped away from him. Who you align yourself with as a king, who you listen to, who you keep company with, is going to define everything about your rule. But the same is true for us. Maybe on a smaller scale, we're just ordinary people. But who we listen to, who we let speak into our lives, will determine the course, not just of our lives, but of all those that we come into contact with. It'll impact, it'll influence them as well. Now, as you listen to this language of, sitting with men of falsehood, or even the last verse, verse 3, of walking in this way, you, you might be thinking, if you've been with us for a while, of Psalm 1. <laughs> Again, this keeps coming back, but the idea of walking with sinners, right, standing and sitting with sinners, the same kind of idea is here. He's saying, I'm not going to sit with men of falsehood. I'm not going to sit with the wicked. I'm not going to rest myself in their company and allow myself to be influenced by them. David will not put himself in that position. In fact, he said he hates the assembly of evildoers. That word assembly is important because it's here it's referring to the negative gathering of people for the sake of evil. At the end of this passage, it'll refer to the assembly of God's people, of the righteous, to praise God. 
but God, but he's saying, you know, he knows when evildoers get together, they get together to celebrate their evil and to plot and plan more evil. And so David doesn't want to go anywhere near that. He wants to keep his associations focused on God. And so he goes from the positive, right, in verse 3, keep walking in faithfulness, to the negative, saying, I'm going to avoid the, the presence of evildoers, and back to the positive, that he wants to seek the presence of God. Verses 6 and 7, he says, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. So he goes to the temple instead, right? When he could go to this place to be with evildoers, to associate with certain kind of people, he instead chooses a different place and a different people. He goes to the altar of God, which implies the temple of God as well. And he's washing his hands. This is probably speaking to the ritual cleansing that would happen when someone would approach the temple of God. There would be these basins where you'd wash in. In fact, even today at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, there are places for you to wash your hands so you can be ritually clean. But really, it's to remember that there's a need for inner cleansing, that when we come to God, we come with dirt on our hands, we come unclean, and so we need to be cleansed by God. Similar idea was in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, where he's, he's asking this question, who will ascend to the hill of God? And he says in verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. So clean hands and pure heart are put together because they're meant to be associated. One's meant to point to the other. But this isn't just an empty ritual for David. He's also praising God from his heart. He washes his hands, but he has a heart full of thanksgiving as well. He's proclaiming God's wondrous deeds. And we forget, I think, sometimes just how powerful and important thanksgiving actually is. When something amazing happens, it's in our nature to be overflowing with praise, to have to tell someone about it, right? To tell someone what happened so they can join in our joy and so our joy can be multiplied and fulfilled. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's famous quote from his Reflections on the Psalms, where he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. Thanksgiving and praise play such an important role in our lives. They need to be verbalized. We need to make a practice of when God does something for us and we see his character, we see his actions, that we in turn consummate that joy by praising him and by telling others about who God is. And of course, I think not just the temporary actions of God, but also God's work throughout history are in view here in this psalm. That we can, we can always praise God. If, if you don't have anything that you can think of to praise God for in your life today, you have a wealth of things to praise him for throughout history. How he's saved you, how he's rescued his people, how he's been so faithful again and again. We always have things to praise God for. Verse 8, he says, Oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. His heart overflows in praise for the temple. And what makes the temple great is that God is there. It's not the decorations. It's not the beautiful craftsmanship. It's not the gold, the wealth that's displayed. It's the God who is present there. It's the, it's the fact where God's, the place where God's glory dwells. 
And we see this about the temple over and over in Scripture, that God's glory comes and dwells there for this season in the history of Israel, that God is present there. And so what David knows he needs above everything else is to be in the place where God's glory is. He wants to see God's glory, know God better, be in his presence, have relationship and communion with him. And then we have the last section, verses 9 to 12, where we see the security of God. So he ends by making more requests of God. He asks God to redeem him and to keep him secure. Look at verse 9. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. So he's speaking to those who are bloodthirsty. He's speaking to those who take bribes, right? So these are people that have no integrity. They're not consistent in their character because they can be paid for. They can be bought. So these are people that lack integrity. These are sinners. And he's saying they're going to be swept away. That term is for gathering things up that are going to be thrown away. And so he knows that the life of the, the wicked is coming to an end. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to face judgment. If sinners come into God's presence, they are destroyed. We saw this in Psalm 5 so clearly. So David recognized this, this terrible fate that's coming for those who are evil, and he wants God to spare him of that fate. I know that none of us want to think about that reality of God's judgment and of his coming destruction or of the reality of hell, but it's such an important thing to remember. Destruction will come for those who oppose God. It's, it's just a reality. It's inevitable that if you reject God, you're going to receive only bad things at the very end. But praise God that he hears our prayers and that he loves to forgive us and that he's made a way for us to be saved through his son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus took that punishment for us so we don't have to be destroyed with the wicked. We can be forgiven. We can be given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's the height of folly to ignore a gift that great. So David here is praying that God would have mercy on him. Look at the end of the passage, verse 11. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. There's the same elements in these verses as there was in verse 1 of this passage. There's a request. There's a reason that's given, right? So he's asking for God's redemption and grace. He's saying, I'm going to walk in my integrity. And then there's a refuge that is taken, right? He's going to be in the great assembly. He's going to have his feet on solid ground. So he's gained access to God's habitation at the end here. And he's with this great assembly, which is such an important phrase, as we saw earlier. He's, he's avoided the assembly of the wicked, and now he's going to find his fulfillment and his joy. He's going to find his place, his people, with the people of God, a place where he can be secure and not slip and not come to destruction. You know, all of this, all this passage points us to Jesus. If we're thinking of false accusations that David faced, never was anyone more falsely accused and slandered than Jesus himself. Never was in, could anyone say that they had walked in wholeheartedness and integrity like Jesus had walked. And, and we, as followers of God, we love the place where God's glory dwells, but we know that that place is no longer a building. There's no building that, that can find that place of glory. The glory of God was displayed in Jesus Christ himself 
as we see in John chapter 1, right? That we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the place where God's glory dwells. And so we look to him, we, we seek to know him, and we, we rejoice that he's washed us of our sins. He's forgiven us so that we can come into the great assembly of God's people, so that we can know, we can approach God with confidence, and we can be part of the family of God. He brings us into that great assembly, both in the present time, when we get to gather with the church and rejoice that we are unified. We have something much greater to bring us together than any hobby or earthly thing, right? We have eternal joy and eternal salvation that unites us. But also, Jesus Christ is going to bring us into that eternal assembly of God's people, the church with a capital C, the people of God throughout history, that one day we will be with them together. We will find our home. We will find security and rest with the people of God.